The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Good morning, Story City Church. Uh, If you're new, my name is Tyler Miller. I'm the campus pastor at our Granada Hills campus, and we're so glad you're with us on our live stream. I have the privilege of bringing us God's word this morning. Uh, And if you have your Bibles, they're in your living room or wherever you are, you can grab them and turn to Romans chapter eight. We're gonna be in Romans eight, verses 22 through 25 this morning primarily. We will bounce around some. I'm gonna read that for us here in a moment. But before I do, I just wanted to share how grateful I am for this church, how much I love this church. And when I say that, I mean you. You are the church, we are the church. And I, I think a season like this reminds us all how much we need each other. And I love you. I'm grateful for you, and I'm grateful for what God's doing in this church. I truly love this church. So let's read this word together from the book of Romans, starting in verse 22, and then we'll pray together. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Let's pray together. And Father, as we come to your word this morning in a posture of worship and surrender, my prayer is that you would form us according to your word. And my prayer is that you would shape and mold us into the image of your son, Jesus. And my prayer is that you would teach us what it means to set the right things in front of ourselves that we might endure through challenging seasons. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, for the first four weeks or so of this, maybe the first month, month and a half, we're at seven weeks now uh, of doing church like this, I think there was... Um, almost a warmth to it, you know, in a city that struggles with busyness, that's deteriorating under haste and running from thing to thing, there can be uh, a welcome, there was almost a welcomed nature to this in a sense, despite sacrifices and the craziness, there was some sense as we gathered in our living rooms, our family of just slowing down and taking a breath. Um, But for me personally, that really faded last week. And I entered into a season where I'm just ready for this to be done. I hit my wall with the pandemic. And I wonder if you might be there uh, as well. Um, I don't know if you remember, but when this whole thing started, uh, it was rainy for like a week straight here in Los Angeles. Just days of cold gray. The weather has shifted. The beaches are waiting. I'm ready to be out of my living room. I don't know if you might recall what it's like to go to a restaurant and sit down and fellowship with friends and order from a menu and just have a delicious burger that your wife or you or your roommates, if you have good roommates, didn't make for you, but a chef prepared. Do you remember that? Those were good things that I miss. Um, Even this live stream and doing church in this way, for a season there was something about it that was kind of cool and different, right? Like we had a chat window where we can talk and all of a sudden you can make live moment-to-moment comments on if you like the pastor's sermon or not. Like when do you ever have that privilege? That's a pretty cool thing, right? But again, I think at this point, we've reached a point where we've hit our wall with the pandemic and we just recognize, we feel the burn. This isn't the way church is supposed to be done. We aren't supposed to be separated. We're supposed to be together and we long for that presence where we can dwell together. We've hit our wall. You know, runners 
talk about hitting their wall a lot. It's a language that's common if you're a runner or a jogger. I've dabbled in running myself, not too seriously, anytime recently. Um, but I've heard, so I've heard that when you run, there's a point where runners will say they hit their wall. For some, it might be a few miles in. For some, it might be 10, 15 miles in if they're trained runners. But there's a point where you hit your wall. And what that feels like is your body just gives out on you. You can't keep going. You're done. No matter how much effort. And you have to choose to overcome matter with mind and push forward. You know, for me, uh, the, the wall of running, I never really understood that saying because it felt like it started as soon as I started running. It didn't stop till I ended. So I never understood that moment of the wall and running. The apostle Paul parallels the Christian journey with a race. He actually parallels the Christian journey with running in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. He says this, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. But here's a question for the Apostle Paul, for you and me this morning. What does this look like in seasons where you've hit your wall? What does it look like to run in such a way as to get the prize when your legs won't work? What does it look like when no matter how much you try to well up mind over matter, you're just done? What does it look like in the Christian journey when faith gives out? What does it look like in the Christian journey where you hit that season where the lights go dark? What does it look like in your Christian journey, in this Christian race, when you hit that day, that month, that year, that decade even? In our pilgrimage towards Christ, we simply hit our wall sometimes. And what is the way forward when I've hit my wall, when you've hit your wall, as we have with this pandemic. The way forward when I've hit my wall is to set the right things before myself. That is to say, another way to say it, is to keep the right things, not to keep, but to put intentionally the right things in view, to keep God and Christ in view in specific ways that our soul needs. Romans 8, our text today, tells us that creation itself hit a wall. Romans 8, 22, our first verse for the morning, we read that we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Paul here says the whole creation is groaning and he draws a picture, he gives an image of a woman in labor. This is a picture of a painful moment, a painful labor endured with the view of a far greater reward in mind. He says creation is like a woman in labor. Romans 8, 20 and 21, a couple verses earlier, gives us a view into what this groaning is, into what it might look like for creation. He says, for creation was subjected in frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its, hear this, bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So from this verse, what do we see is the wall that creation has hit? What are the labor pains? What are the groaning? The apostle Paul says it's a bondage to decay. A bondage to decay. He says every tree, every mountain, Every animal, every river is in literal bondage to decay, something we would call entropy. Do we not see this in our current moment? Is this not an undeniable reality for us? We have a world that is 
on lockdown and being ravaged by a virus, an evil, wicked virus inflicting pain and death. It is decay. But Paul says creation was put in this place by the one who subjected it in hope, that's God, that creation itself will be liberated from bondage to decay. And what? What is the hope? What is the thing that creation has set in front of it? Freedom and glory that is the children of God's. In verse 23, we read that like creation, we as children of God also groan. Romans 8, 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. The Apostle Paul kind of paints a picture here for us as believers who have been filled and indwelt by the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, that it's like we are in a home and Jesus is cooking a meal that is going to be delicious. We can smell the foretaste, the aroma, but we can't taste it yet. The Spirit has filled us and we know the hope that is to come, but we cannot sink our teeth into it yet. He says that we are in bondage to decay, but the hope that is set before us up against this wall, the thing we wait for is the redemption of our bodies. The reality the Apostle Paul is exposing right here is the Genesis 3 reality that sin has ravaged planet Earth. Things are not as they're supposed to be, and there's coming a moment that we look forward to in hope, setting it before ourselves, that Jesus will return again and make all things right. You know, for many of us, though, the first step towards learning to set the right things in front of ourselves when we've hit our wall is coming to recognize how much we struggle with waiting on anything at all. Much less long-suffering, much less endurance. We just stink at waiting. I want it now. We live in a culture that has trained us that we can have everything now. Before we can learn to put the right things in front of ourselves, we have to come to terms with the reality that there's some things we just can't possess right now. There are some things that can't be attained through stroking a check, through downloading an app, through calling the right person. Some things can only be attained through waiting. See, we've been raised in a culture that's done its very best, Western America, to silence the groaning. Silence the groaning. We want to Mute the groaning of creation. Mute the groaning of our own souls. To put it simply, this post-Christian, secular context that we have been formed in has tried, it's been an attempt to usher in the kingdom without the king. To return to the garden, but forsake the gardener. But guess what? It hasn't worked. It can't work. There is no kingdom without the king. When we realize this, when we live in this world that preaches and tells us and tries to set us up to have everything at once, to move from comfort to comfort, lives marked by constant upward mobility with no downturns, when we realize that that's just not tenable, that it doesn't work, that we still suffer, that we still hit walls, it leads to great disillusionment. Paul Brand uh, was a pioneering orthopedic surgeon. He was British. But he spent much of his career and ministry in India India, treating leprosy. But he later, after many years in India, came to work in the United States at the end of his career. He wrote a book called The Gift of Pain, which I recommend to you. But he says in in that book, in the US, the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level 
than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. A double irony is at work. In conquering pain and suffering to a degree unmatched in history, we've inadvertently become less able to cope with it. And by endlessly seeking pleasure, we've bred ever-rising expectations that keep contentment tantalizingly out of reach. Brand, in his wisdom, argues that our culture's achievement, which we have achieved a greater level of comfort and conquering pain than any society that has ever lived on planet Earth has here in America. But he says this has had two unexpected and unfortunate side effects. One, it's ill-equipped us to endure, to persevere under the realities of suffering that we all face. And two, it's led us to a deep place of discontentment and disillusionment rooted in a false sense of entitlement to comfort. See, we don't just think entitlement is something we can have. We think pleasure and comfort are something we are entitled to. One of the immediate knee-jerk reactions we have when our comfort is interrupted by hardship is to look for who is to blame. So if my norm, if what I'm entitled to is pleasure and comfort uninterrupted, Someone is to blame when I suffer. We see this in real time in our current moment, do we not? China is to blame. Europe is to blame. America is to blame. The government is to blame. People who won't wear masks are to blame. The people who want me to wear a mask are to blame. The president is to blame. No, the media is to blame. No conservatives are to blame. No liberals are to blame. No Popeyes is to blame for making a chicken sandwich and encroaching on Chick-fil-A's territory. No Carol Baskins is to blame. Around we go. The story is told that the Times of London, a newspaper, at one point early in the 1900s, posed this question to several prominent authors. What is wrong with the world today? They sent it out to several authors and asked for responses. The well-known author G.K. Chesterton is said to have responded with a one-sentence essay. Dear sir, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. It's a clever quip. But Chesterton's answer is an insight for us this morning. We need to weigh it carefully. See, the ultimate problem with the world is not a virus. The ultimate problem in the world is not a communist regime. It's not an inflated government. It's not fake news. These are symptoms of our true enemy. And our true enemy is not something like all of those things that is external to us but something that is inbred and internal within us. Our true enemy is our own sin. It is the real problem with the world. It is the real problem with my life is my sin. And the real problem, I humbly submit to you, church, with your life is your own sin. Sin is not something external to any of us, but rather it is something with roots in my heart and yours. Let's think about this. Let's process this. The problems in my life are not a result of something that has been done to me primarily, but a result of something that is within me, sin. And this is an important thing for us to recognize because in any war, the most important thing is to know that you're fighting the right enemy. 
It doesn't matter the way I wage my warfare. It doesn't matter how much I prepare. It doesn't matter the arsenal of my weaponry or the power of my army if I'm fighting against the wrong enemy. And hear me, Christian. The right enemy to be fighting in your life, the right enemy to be fighting in my life is my own sin. When I've hit my wall, my greatest problems are not external to me. They are inbred within me. But there is a second cause to our sin beyond ourselves, the flesh. There, there is a, a cause that is the devil. And I want us to hear this loud and clear this morning in a season where many of us may be growing weary and hitting our wall. One of the devil's great ploys against you and me is simply to wear us out. Simply to wear us out. He's not looking to get us caught in a big sin or scandal. He's not looking for any great motion in our life at all. He wants us complacent, and then he wants to simply get us tired and wear us out. Daniel 7, 25 says this in the ESV version. Speaking of Satan, our enemy, our accuser. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. See, the Lord, knows that this is the, the Lord knows that this is a ploy of our enemy. He knows that the enemy will simply seek to wear us out. He knows how we will play on the flesh, play on the world, play on the devil. And the Lord has scattered throughout the scriptures verses that speak to how we as Christians are supposed to respond and begin to lay things in front of us. Colossians 6, 9 comes to mind. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up in the Christian race. Uh, this language here of sowing and reaping and harvest invokes imagery of patience. It invokes, it invokes imagery of laboring under a burden, enduring, persevering with, the, persevering with the right things in front of us, and then waiting patiently. Romans 8.25 says, if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Patience can be defined as just a willingness to wait a long, long, long time. In Romans 8.24, our text this morning, we read that for in hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have. The Apostle Paul here writes that literally we were saved in hope. Is this not a way of saying we were saved not into the presence of a reward, but into the promise of a reward, into the pursuit of our true reward? See, the Christian journey to glory is marked not by the possession of a reward, but by the promise and pursuit of a reward. We're saved into hope, meaning we look forward to something. Now, that's not to say there aren't great rewards along the way, comforts, joys the Lord gives us, but the ultimate reward is eternal, something we labor, we race forward for as we seek the ultimate reward. Uh, Viktor Frankl was an Austrian neurologist and a psychiatrist, and he also su survived the Holocaust. He survived Auschwitz and many other deadly death camps. Uh, he was the founder of something called Logotherapy and authored the best-selling book called Man's Search for Meaning. 
Logotherapy, which Frankel founded, is founded upon the belief that striving to find meaning in life is life's primary and most powerful motivating and driving force. Uh, Logotherapy posits two primary ideas. Track with this. He says that life, one, has meaning under all circumstances. So no matter how bad life gets, there is meaning in life. Even the most miserable circumstances have meaning. And two, it posits that our main motivation for living is our will to find meaning in life. In man's search for meaning, Frankel is quoted as saying, those who have a why to live can bear almost any how. Those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. Uh, Frankel discusses how in the concentration camps that he endured, the men that ended up surviving and living forward towards freedom were those that kept hope in front of them, that as they filled the concentration camps, the things that they discussed, the things they chose to fill their thoughts with were simple hopes and joys of the future that they planned on doing when they got out. They kept hope in front of themselves. They kept the right things in front of themselves. He said these were simple things for a lot of people, simple things like going fishing again, like hunting again, like sitting around a dinner table with their family, like starting their business back up, like eating a good meal. But they simply kept the joys of life in front of themselves. And he says in this book that as soon as someone surrendered this ability to hope for the better days and to keep their things back in front of, uh, keep the good things in front of themselves, they were doomed. They were doomed. On 9-11, Port Authority officer John McLaughlin was leading a team during the attacks shortly after the airplanes had hit the buildings through the inner corridor between the two trade towers. He had a team of five cops with him and they were headed up to help rescue victims of the attack when the buildings collapsed on top of them, the South Tower first, leaving them, him and his team, 40 feet underground, trapped under rubble, bleeding internally, Only two of the cops actually ended up surviving the collapse, uh, McLaughlin and his partner, Will Himeno. While under the ground, they tell the story now on the other side as they were rescued, that they kept themselves alive by fighting off sleep, by talking to each other about the things in life that they enjoyed, about the hope that they had set before them for when they reemerged from the rubble. There were almost 3,000 people killed on 9-11 there were only 20 people pulled from the rubble that day. Himeno and McLaughlin were numbers 18 and 19. McLaughlin, when he was finally pulled from the rubble, 22 hours after laying in darkness under concrete, spent the next six weeks in a medically induced coma, undergoing 27 reconstructive surgeries on his legs alone. When later interviewed and asked to tell their story, McLaughlin and Himeno shared about the thoughts that filled their mind and kept them awake and alive as they internally bled under the pile of rubble. They shared about the thoughts they filled their mind with. For Himeno, it was hunting. He's a turkey hunter. He said he played out in his mind time and time again his joy in hunting and how he hoped to do it again. For McLaughlin, it was his wife and four kids that kept his heart pounding and his hope alive. See, when we've hit our wall, at the risk of being redundant. When we feel like we can't go forward, the way forward is to set the right things in front of ourselves, to keep the right things in view. So, as believers in this race, what are these things? This is where I wanna land. 
What are, the, what are some things that we can put in front of ourselves? Maybe you're in the season right now where you've just hit your wall. It's more than just being indoors and longing for community. But spiritually, maybe you've been in a season for a long time where you just can't find the way forward and you need some practical steps. What can I do? What, what choices do I have to make that can be practical things, not to earn salvation, but effort towards joy in Jesus? What's some kindling? that we can gather around ourselves. Well, the first thing I would say is, is I can't diagnose for you what you need to put in front of yourself. I don't know your struggle right now, if your struggle is with apathy and complacency. I don't know if your struggle is with sin. I don't know if you're simply suffering. I don't know. We need to assess and address these things through prayer and the counsel of people in our lives that know and understand us. But... There are some things that I would say are always the right thing to keep in front of ourselves. Always. First, I'll give you three. The promises of God found in the word of God are always the right thing to set before yourself. So what does this look like? What does it look like to set the promises of God found in the word of God before yourself? Well, when my wall is sin when there is just something and my sin looks more beautiful to me than Jesus and I want to change it, but I want that thing more than I want Christ, how do I change? Well, the first thing I need to recognize is that all sin is misplaced hope, right? All sin is looking to the future, placing our hope in something that we believe will bring joy and we need to recognize that our sin is placing our hope in the wrong things and that only Jesus can give us what that thing is promising. But there's a few other promises. Number one, we need to lay before ourselves the promise that sin leads to pain and righteousness leads to joy. Psalm 1-6, Pastor Matt spoke out of this text last week, says, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of wickedness leads to destruction. Verse three in that chapter of the Bible, in that book of the Bible, in that chapter would say that the righteous man bears his fruit in season, that he's like a tree with roots sunk deep down into the water, drawing his vitality from an unseen source. But the wicked are like chaff. It's a promise of scripture that sin is suffering and righteousness leads to reward. Another promise you can lay before yourself this morning is the promise that God will meet me with grace even when I'm at my worst. I don't have to fear returning to the Lord. Psalm 133 through four says this, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. God welcomes us back. Romans would tell us that the kindness of God draws us to repentance. A few promises for when my wall is sin. What about if my wall is suffering? What if the thing I just can't seem to pull past, pull through in life is just this suffering? It's not something I've caused. It's not a consequence. It's something that has just come into my life unexpectedly. Well, a few promises I'd give you if you're suffering this morning from the word of God. Number one, the promise that you have permission to wrestle with God about your suffering. Psalm 77, seven through nine says this. Let's watch the psalmist here wrestle with the Lord. Say things to the Lord that we go, really, can you say that? Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? 
the psalmist wrestles. We have freedom to question, freedom to wrestle with the Lord. Another promise I'd give you if you're suffering this morning is the promise that God forms you through pain. God has promised that he will form you through pain. Romans 5, 3 and 4 says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. I would also put before you, if you're suffering this morning, the promise of resurrection and glory. The promise that your suffering is not the last word. Romans 6, 5 says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is good news for us this morning. I'd lay before you that the promises of God found in the word of God are always the right thing for you to lay before yourself. Secondly, I'd lay before you that the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners is always the right thing to lay before yourself, to keep in view. You know, when we talk about endurance, when we talk about uh, perseverance and running the race to get the prize, uh, an easy pitfall to slip into is this belief that I'm saved, that I'm getting style points for how well I endure, right? Like, if I really endure at a 10 out of 10, I'm a good Christian. If my endurance is a 3 out of 4, I'm going to carry a 3 out of 10. I'm going to carry a little bit of shame about my perseverance, but maybe the Lord will still have grace. But I'm going to do my best. Hear me, Christian. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that we aren't saved by our ability to endure. We were saved by his ability to endure upon the cross. Christian, your salvation is hidden in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We endure as we fight for joy in Jesus, not acceptance from Jesus. If I did not earn my salvation on my best day, which I didn't, there was no day where God was looking down and I really nailed it and I was just feeling so good about myself and God said, wow, Tyler had a really good series of four hours. Okay, I'll say he's saved now. That never happened. I wasn't saved on my best day, which means this, I can't be unsaved. I can't lose what God gave me freely with my worst day, with my worst season, with my worst year, with my worst decade. We are saved in the gospel. Hear me, that gives us hope this morning to endure, not out of earning, but without killing effort. Does that make sense? We don't, we don't endure to earn back something from God. But we do put forth exertion. We do put forth effort. We do labor with all the power that God works within us to fight for joy in Jesus when we've hit our wall. Only the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners can motivate that kind of Christian living. So the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners is always the right thing to set before yourself when you're up against the wall. Lastly, Christ, the suffering Savior, is always the right thing to set before yourself, to keep in view. Uh, if there was one passage in Scripture that I think sums up in a concise way everything God has spoken into my life this week, and what I hope to communicate this morning is this verse I'm about to read. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Everything we've talked about is in this verse. It says this, starting at the back half of verse one. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, 
fixing our eyes, setting before ourselves Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before Jesus, hear that? Jesus had something set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down the reward at the right hand of the throne of God. And then it says this, consider, think, meditate on, wrap your mind around him who endured such opposition from sinners. Why? So that in this Christian race, you will not grow weary and lose heart. See, Christ modeled for us. Why, does, why, does the, why, why are we instructed here to fix our eyes on Jesus? This is such a familiar verse for so many Christians. Why though? Why are we, what are we looking for? What are we looking to? What does he say in verses two and three? He says the thing we're looking to Jesus for is because Christ himself endured because on the cross, the thing that kept Christ hanging there, <laughs> Uh, Spurgeon has a great quote, uh, Charles Spurgeon, where he says, the, the creator of all things hung on the cross, had nails through his hands, and then the greatest act of love of all time, he stayed. He simply stayed. What kept Jesus on the cross in immense suffering as he cries out, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the father who he has been in eternal intimate relationship with turns his face away and as the weight of our sin came crashing down upon Jesus, what kept him there? What gave him endurance? What was set before him when he hit his wall? This verse tells us, there's a verse in Isaiah 53 that says, the results of his suffering, he will see and be satisfied. The results of his suffering, he will see and be satisfied. So let me ask this, what were the results of his suffering? The completion of his mission, pleasing the Father, but let me posit to you, the one thing that Jesus had after the cross that he did not have before it was me, and you, forgiven and redeemed, the way open between sinners and a holy God, wrapped in his arms forever in eternity. See, Jesus had to set some things in front of himself in his moment of endurance when he hit his wall. And we're told to consider him in this moment so that when we come to our wall, so that when we suffer, so that when we must wait, so that when we must learn to persevere and endure in a culture that stinks at waiting, so that when the hardship comes, when the night falls, we see that suffering is to be expected. Continual comfort, continual pleasure, continual ease is the exception in this life, not the expectation. And so we look to our Savior, we set before ourselves in this journey of life, in this Christian race, the suffering savior, the gospel of his grace and the promises of his word when we've hit our wall. And listen, it won't happen overnight. There's a reason this is called perseverance. It's a continual setting in front of yourself day after day. Church, let's wait together through this season where we're separated and I'm preaching over a live stream. Through these moments where we wonder how long, oh Lord, 
let us wait together, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. Psalm 16, 8, and 9, I'll close by reading this. I have set the Lord always before me, before me, before me, before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Father, Spirit and Son, we thank you this day. We thank you this day that you are the suffering Savior who now sits in glory at the right hand of the Father. We thank you that in your moment, against your wall, you persevered, you endured, you showed us what that looks like. God, in this moment, this coronavirus moment, will we recognize that our truest problem is ourselves, that our greatest answer is you, would you teach us what it looks like to set the right things in front of ourselves moment by moment, day by day, looking to you, to your promises, to your word, to your gospel, and to your son. Give us the grace today to live this out. Be with us in Jesus' name.